0: Father God, we want to humble ourselves before you this morning and know that we are broken people, each of us, living in a broken world. And as we stumble in the darkness, we thank you that Jesus is the light of the world and your word. Is a, a, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. So please would you speak to us? Would you show us what it means to follow Jesus with these big issues that we are considering? And help us to keep doing that by trusting in him for forgiveness, to receive afresh your grace and a fresh start. Thank you that we can do that confidently because of Jesus' death for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to begin this series of big issues by focusing on the beginning of life. Next week will be the end of life, then male and female in creation, then male and female in the church. Now, I think when we talk about the beginning of life, I don't think we can get away from the fact that, for some, this is a deeply personal and potentially painful thing to be talking about. Because as we talk about when life begins, we come pretty quickly to the very sensitive but kind of live topic of abortion. The statistics quoted on abortion are slightly different depending on where you look, but it seems that nearly one in four pregnancies in the UK ends in abortion, and currently up to one in three women will have an abortion at some point in their life. Uh, The the numbers involved are are huge. Uh, 125,000 abortions are performed every day around the world. That's 30 to 40 million per year. Uh, When you line that up alongside the number of deaths from coronavirus, well, we're at 1 million so far. And it's striking to consider the lengths that we're prepared to go to stem those deaths, absolutely rightly. When you think, well, 50 million died in total from the Spanish flu in 1918. And that is the same number of abortions year in, year out since the late 1960s. But the numbers mean that it is extremely likely that there will be people listening now, either here in this room or online or maybe in the future, to a recording of this, uh, who will have experienced abortion or for whom this is a painful subject to discuss and I And want to say very clearly that this is not intended to be an exercise in finger wagging or strident apportioning of blame or indeed in politicizing a personal issue these are very complex things and we do believe in a god of forgiveness a god of fresh starts a god who has brought us grace in christ we saw a couple of weeks ago in matthew's gospel There is only one unforgivable sin – only one – and that is being unwilling to come to Jesus for that forgiveness. But what I say this morning as we examine this together may well still cause questions and concerns or or, or disagreements, and and I want to apologise in advance for any clumsiness in the way that I speak about these things this morning we're going to have a time of Q&A after the service, which you're welcome to stay around uh, for. It's optional after the service finishes. But we'll have a time of Q&A. You can come and contribute to that. We'll explain about that later. I'd also very much welcome any individual getting in touch. If you want to talk further in the coming days or weeks, I know Corinne as well, who's going to speak very briefly um, on some of the practical aspects of this a bit later, um, she'd be very willing to do that as well. And there are, of course, also other ways in which the beginning of life can be a painful thing to consider, whether because of miscarriage or infertility or for other reasons. So we we need to acknowledge this is not an easy thing to listen to. It's not an easy thing to speak about. We need to remember the gospel. We need to remember the love of God for all human people and for all human life. But as we get into this, I think the big question really is, is an abortion really, just the removal of some cells and tissue from the body, you know, no different from removing a, a tumor of some kind? Or is it the deliberate ending of a human life? Because actually, really, the answer to that question massively affects how we approach the whole thing of course it does and you will hear different answers to that question depending on who you talk to and that's why we're going to try and look at that question from from the angle of the bible this morning to see what the bible says about these things so i think on the way in, most people were given a little yellow sheet of paper with an outline of where we're going so do have that in front of you I think we had the classic error of half of them, say, four, five, six, four, five, six. So if that's you, you should see some one, two, three. Don't be confused by that. But there we go. Uh, We're going to look at both Genesis and Psalm 139 very briefly. So first, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28 that we heard, gives us three principles that we can apply, actually, to many ethical questions. And we may well return to these principles in future weeks. Very simply, Genesis 1 says that God made human beings. He's the creator. And that leads to three big principles. Okay, here's the first one. That God gets to tell us who we are. God gets to tell us who we are. We're not self-made. We're not autonomous. We are creatures. And so, of course, of course it's absolutely no surprise when we find that those who don't believe in God, those who are atheists, arrive at a very different conclusion on these issues. Because if we are, in the end, autonomous, if there's no one to sort of tell us what to do with our lives, if we're just here with no ultimate purpose or meaning or reason for being here, well, actually, it actually really is up to us to answer these questions ourselves. But if God made us, well, actually, then he gets to tell us who we are, and what human life is all about. So that's the first principle. The second one is this. If God made us, that means we have value simply from who we are. We have value simply from who we are. In the image of God, he created mankind, we read. The the, the idea that every human being has value and has equal value sounds like a wonderfully modern thing to say doesn't it and our culture would generally regard that as kind of obvious self-evident you don't need god to tell you you're all equally valuable people might say but let me tell you actually the thing is you do the roman world for example didn't take this for granted at all that abortions were common but so was infanticide the killing of unwanted newborn babies the writer tom holland who's not a christian but he, he he has shown Recently, in a book called Dominion, a big book, it's an important book, it it tells the story of the whole of Western civilization over the last 2,000 years, and it shows how it is to Christianity that the modern world owes its understanding of equality. Now, of course, the modern world is trying to say we can have that without the God bit. We can just have the sort of values of Christianity. But that's where the modern world is getting Equality from it is from the Bible, in fact. When the slave trade was brought to an end, for for, for example, it was the social conscience of evangelical Christians like William Wilberforce that lay behind much of that movement. See, without God, on what basis can you argue that we are all of equal value? And again, equal value because of who we are just simply by being human not having to prove our value by achieving anything or doing anything simply by being who we are well the bible says it's because we're made in god's image that's where you get your value from we are valuable and therefore equally valuable simply because of who we are and that then we'll think about the implications of that in a bit but that then leads us to a a third thing that we should work with God's design for what he has made and not against it. We should work with God's design for what he's made and not against it. We need to go with the grain, we might say. And that's precisely because there is a design. We, we read in, the, in Genesis chapter 1, male and female, he made them, for example. So is gender actually a spectrum where we, and we're all somewhere on the spectrum? Well, not according to Genesis 1, do you see? We, we are male or female because that is God's design. Now, we'll think more specifically about that in a couple of weeks' time, but it it illustrates the point. We need to work within and according to that design, not against it. Now, of course, it's true. Genesis 1 and 2 are followed by Genesis 3, where sin enters creation and creation itself is spoiled. God's original design has been spoiled. And in fact, that throws up some of the questions that we uh, have to grapple with today. But the point is that god's design is broken rather than utterly destroyed now there's a book that i've found hugely helpful on this subject this whole area of these ethical issues and i highly recommend it if you want to go a lot deeper than we can possibly do on a sunday morning Uh, but it's a book called matters of life and death by john wyatt john wyatt is a christian pediatrician and professor of medical ethics his book, Matters of Life and Death. Make a note of that if you want to to look it up. And he he speaks about two views of responding to the brokenness of the world. One is a Lego bricks view, which says, well, yeah, the world is broken. We're free to put it back together however we want. So experiment as much as you want with stem cells and embryos and everything else because, you know, anything goes. Just, Just see what happens. But he suggests that a better way of... Speaking and thinking about these things is of a flawed masterpiece view of God's creation. See, if you're restoring a beautiful painting, your aim is not to try to arrive and and end up somewhere completely new compared to where you started, but to get back to the original intention of the artist. That's what it means with regard to God's design, do you see? We acknowledge things aren't always as they're meant to be in this world, and sometimes there are difficult issues that present themselves medically and scientifically but the principle is let's stick with uh, the intention of god's design he is the original artist so those are the three key principles that are really important and that then takes us to the really the key question for considering the beginning of life which is when does life actually begin When does life actually begin? And that that question needs examining further because actually, well, no one would dispute that when a sperm fertilises an egg, something human is made. Something human is there at that point. It is human cells that that result, human tissue. But actually, well, so is my hair, or or it used to be. That is human uh, cells, and that human hair has fallen out and it's gone. And, And the question is then... What, when is what is in the womb not just human, but actually a person? Do you see? That's the, really the question that matters. We all agree that it's human, but so is a lot of stuff that we don't get too upset about losing. But uh, when is what is in the womb not just human, but actually a person? And, and this is a question that even Christians have sometimes given slightly different Answers too, particularly in the history of the church, going back hundreds of years when actually very little was understood about what happens in the womb. Some Christians were heavily influenced by Aristotle's view of personhood beginning at the quickening of the baby when it starts to move. But actually, in some ways, what science now tells us, as well as what the Bible says, actually they all push us towards seeing and understanding that personhood begins much, much earlier and when you could feel the baby move. And what I want to argue, along with most contemporary Bible-believing Christians, is that we should understand personhood to begin at the point of conception itself, when the the sperm and the egg uh, come together. And Psalm 139 is a good place to see why that is. So let's, let's turn to Psalm 139. Uh, David testifies to three things concerning his relationship with God. He says first that he is created by God. And there are little echoes that, in the language that David uses of the first chapter of Genesis. John Wyatt comments on this in his book. You know, The, the womb is a dark, mysterious, secret place. Do you see that, verses 14, 15, 16? The action He talks about in the psalm, takes place in the depths of the earth. The body moves from being unformed to formed. That's all very kind of Genesis 1 creation language. Inside the womb, then, there is a a mini version, a microcosm of the creation of the universe taking place. No wonder, he says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made, David in the psalm. And, and, And just because we know more than David about the mechanics of what happens in the womb doesn't actually lessen any of that wonder does it if anything the more we know about what happens inside the womb it increases that wonder doesn't it a doctor or a scientist can analyze what happens on a cellular level can they actually explain what life is where it comes from what it is for That is where david starts that he is created by god and that is an extraordinary thing then then he continues he is known by god he uses the covenant name for god yahweh lord in capital letters in 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 verse one which expresses in itself that there is a special relationship that god has with him and if you look it's even there that knowledge of him there in the womb you know me And it's clear that this knowledge is not a factual knowledge, but an intimate knowledge. There is nowhere he can go without God knowing him. He cannot escape. And, of course, because he's talking about uh, a pre-birth knowledge, the emphasis is all on how God knew him. And that it was God who knew him. It's a unilateral thing. It's a one-sided thing. He, he, He didn't know God at that point. He couldn't say that. But he knows that God knew him. And even determined the days ordained for him. Verse 16. Your eyes saw my unformed body. You knew me. You knew me. But he's created by God, known by God. And then he's in continuous relationship with God. The past, the present and the future are all here in this psalm. Can you see that? You have searched me and you knit me together. You know now when I sit and when I rise. Verse 10, your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. When he looks back then to the womb, particularly in verses 13 to 16, he he doesn't say there was a mysterious being there which later became him. What what was there in the womb was him. He was there. The, The fact that God knew him first is the basis for the entire relationship that he has with God now there is personal continuity there is personal relationship with god is there ever a time then when david was not known by god the implication seems to be no and and, and one who is known by god is well is a person you see it takes two persons to have a relationship to have a relationship and be known when you're just a thing do you see Now, of course, this is precisely where many would disagree. And we're going to briefly consider some objections to to these things. Let's have a think about them. So, uh, someone might say, well, you know, a a fertilized egg is an embryo. It's, It's just a bunch of cells. It's incapable of pain. It's incapable of suffering. It's incapable of anything at all. And therefore, to to call it a person is is really misleading, some of them might say. And, well, for that reason, a a few years ago, Richard Dawkins caused a bit of controversy. Here's his tweet on the screen. uh, By suggesting that with all the fuss made about human embryos, any human uh, embryo, and indeed he said any human fetus, which is the next stage of development, isn't it, after 10 or 11 weeks, uh, he said any human fetus is less human than an adult pig. He's talking biologically, obviously, and he's obviously intending to provoke and shock. But um, he's saying that an adult pig has more in common biologically with humans than the bunch of cells that make up a fetus. And of course, well, we don't consider the life of adult pigs to be sacrosanct and to be preserved at every possible cost, or far from it, so why the fuss about fetuses? And the answer from a biblical perspective, again, is, well... Hang on a minute, who gets to say what a person is? See, it's not the humanity itself which proves value, it's the personhood. And it, and it goes back to what we said before. If God made us, he gets to say what a person is. And more than that, a person then has value simply from being a person made in the image of God. That was our second principle from Genesis, remember. That means that you don't have to think or be capable of thought, or you don't, you don't have to feel or be capable of feeling to be a person and to have that value. And, of course, the real danger of that analogy with the, with the pig way of thinking about things is that actually what you do with value is that you start to locate value in function and not being. So you, you say, what a person is capable of doing is what determines whether they are valuable and actually once you admit that well the door is open to all kinds of very very uncomfortable conclusions about other human persons who may do very little through disability or frailty and then the question is well why is their life worth preserving if you follow through that logic now, that may, may make us feel very uncomfortable. I think it ought to make us feel very uncomfortable. But that seems to be where the logic that this is just a bunch of cells, because it's, you know, it's not capable of, of, of feeling, it's not capable of, of thought. Well, just hang on a minute before we push back against what God says, after all, is the case. So for that reason, uh, John Wyatt and, and others have suggested that language is really important in this whole area that uh, instead of speaking of human embryos for example would it be more accurate to speak of embryonic humans you see it's a little shift isn't it but think about how that shifts how we think about what is actually there in the womb is it a human embryo which makes it sound like it's something else or is it an embryonic yes it isn't The same as a fully formed baby, even let alone an adult, but it's an embryonic human person. So, can you see how the language affects that? And you know, so the cells that make up the embryo are incapable of much of what we consider to, to do with human life. Actually, some of a lot of the cells that are in the human embryo. Don't end up in the human body that is going to be born. They form the placenta and other things. And some, so you know, people sort of say, "Well, all this fuss about this, you know, these cells. Do you realise they don't even end up in the human body?" And, and, well, and, and yes, it's true that from time to time the early embryo splits into twin embryos who so are different persons. And, and, and biologists, biologists, and doctors will tell you all kinds of things that go on at the cellular level but still none of those things and none of those none of that analysis can tell you what a person is and decide for you what makes a person the point is god gets to tell us what a person is you can't find a person under a microscope so that's one um, ob- ob- objection that people might have but you know someone might then say surely well if you say life begins at conception you know before implantation even in in the womb aren't you then forgetting that millions of pregnancies end very quickly at that point completely naturally and indeed later uh, many others are naturally miscarried in the first few weeks and indeed sadly beyond that but again let's just be very careful because that is measuring value by function in the sense of well let's just wait and see what this does before we decide if it is valuable rather than saying no this has value because of who it is created by God in the image of God. And actually I think this this kind of argument also falls down when you consider the case of the many, many infant babies who die in the third world in the first year of life. Now that is a tragic fact of uh, life in in our world and always has been. And we pray that it it might not continue to be, but it is true. But we don't therefore say it's okay to kill newborn babies because of the, the, the reality of that fact. Rather, what we do is we mourn that this world is a broken world. We mourn the flawed masterpiece, remember. It is, the world is broken by sin, that is true. And that does lead to death and suffering in the world around us. But we don't then give up on God's intention for his creation. What then about the hard cases, we might say? What about the tragic circumstances that might lead someone and lead a woman to, to, to consider abortion? And there absolutely are hard cases. And, and, and we can think through some more in the Q&A if people want to raise particular questions. Um, and we should say both lives matter. Both lives absolutely matter matter but does it have to be one at the expense of the other you know there are real questions to be asked first about whether we're sure that abortion does not in fact harm the mother psychologically and physically in ways that are not always spelt out and so actually even if great harm has been done to her is there a risk that we are doing further harm to her through uh, carrying out this uh, the, the abortion uh, at that point, and we need to ask whether there are genuine alternatives that allow this embryonic human person in the womb to live, but also to give support and life and care to the mother through a birth that may well be very difficult now Corin is going to speak in a few. Uh, minutes on the practical side of what it means to support mothers in that situation, but it absolutely isn't enough to just say, "Well, look, come on, you've got to keep the baby and that's it." You know, we're going to leave the rest to you. In, in the U.S., actually, where abortion, as we you know, may well know from watching the news, is you know there's much more on the surface of, dis- of discussion in the culture. But the U.S. church has, on the whole, put its money where its mouth is in supporting adoption, for example. And making that a thing that is celebrated and is normal and is common among US Christians. It's that sort of thing that actually is involved in in, in taking these steps and making this kind of stand. But of course as we consider this, we, we, we can't ignore the fact that at the heart of the Christian message... As we come towards a close, the heart of the Christian message is the fact that 2,000 years ago, God entered the womb as a human person. Jesus was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, as we say in in our creeds. In in one sense, we could uh, forget everything else we've said this morning and just meditate on that one thing and the implications for the status of the baby in the womb. What does God think about the embryo and the life in the womb? Well, God became an embryo in the womb of Mary. It was the divine Son of God taking on a human nature so that he was fully divine and fully human. One person in two natures. Here, here's a picture on the screen that went round the world a few years ago. Of groundbreaking surgery on an unborn baby with spina bifida in the womb at 21 weeks gestation. Now, you, if you can just make that out, there's the surgeon who, who's managed to remove the uterus through a C section, but the, 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 the baby, unborn, has, his little tiny hand is holding onto the surgeon's finger as he performs this groundbreaking surgery at 21 weeks gestation Um, and the baby was unlikely to survive without intervention at this very early stage john wyatt again makes uh, points out that with that tiny 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 little hand grasping the surgeon's finger he says well there's a picture here of us and god except which way round do we and god go in that picture Which way round do we and God go? What would you say? Well, we often think of ourselves as helpless and God as the strong one sustaining us. But of course, at Christmas, we remember, God became that helpless, tiny baby in the womb. Utterly tiny, utterly dependent. Christmas is one of the strongest and simplest reasons to reconsider our culture's attitude to the unborn. And to Christmas, we could also add Easter. Because at Easter, we find Jesus on the cross, where the weak shames the strong, and the powerless brings down the powerful. Christmas and Easter, they're the fixed points of the Christian message, and still of each year, the fixed points of each year in the West, do they not say to us from the womb to the tomb God is with us every step of the way because he has experienced both as man and do they not say the weak and the powerless and the tiny and the humanly insignificant matter they matter more than we can possibly imagine Now, there are a lot more things that we can say, which I'd invite you to raise in the Q&A later, and, and, uh, which Corin and I will both be involved with. But, but before we finish, I just want to f- briefly mention that, of course, the issues around the beginning of life don't just have implications for abortion. They also affect how we think about miscarriage. Uh, many women, and, and indeed men and fathers, experience even early miscarriage as a deep sadness that often goes unrecognised, by others and again our, our culture would tend to say well you know it's just it was, it's very early it's just a bunch of cells it's okay it's not that big a deal but the bible allows us to say no this is this is very painful and it matters even at an early stage because if life begins at conception so does parenthood So grief is entirely appropriate and and, and that grief, like any other grief, may have lasting effects not seen by others. And in a church we want to be able to share those griefs with one another and be honest with one another. And and, and sometimes in those particular circumstances some couples have found it helpful just to pray with a, a close group of friends when these things have happened. Others even to have a small funeral service, especially if the miscarriage happens a little later in the pregnancy or indeed is what Doctors would normally call a still birth. We mustn't undervalue that sense of loss and grief in, 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 the, in those circumstances. I think there are implications too, as we think about the beginning of life, for things like fetal screening. Now, this is hugely complicated, but it's just worth asking some questions. Not necessarily going to give all the answers, but here, you know we need to ask. Am I having this test so that I can care better for my unborn child, which, of course, many tests will definitely help with, absolutely. Or is this test, for for example, for Down syndrome and things like that, is that only being encouraged by those around us purely to give us the option to terminate the pregnancy, as some would put it euphemistically? Again, the language regarding what's going on when that happens matters here as well, doesn't it? I think think it's just worth asking those questions once you've got the principles in place, um, uh, rather than sort of giving a hard and fast rule about every case. The, The other area, of course, is fertility treatment, IVF. And again, someone who takes the life of the embryonic human seriously will be concerned with treatments that involve the eventual discarding of embryonic humans versus for example treatments that that um, ensure all embryos are implanted in the womb now there's still big questions to ask about precisely what's going on and how that works um, but but those are the kinds of questions to, to think about Similarly, introducing a third party into the parental relationship, either through sperm donation or contribution of genetic material, just seems also to run against the design of God's creation, as we thought about at the start. But again, these things are highly nuanced. um, And it's unwise to make kind of hard and fast rules everywhere you go. But we need to ask the questions. We need to be thinking in biblical categories about these things. Well, where then does this leave us practically? It leaves us with three things. The first is compassion, because both lives matter. Compassion first for the mother and indeed for the father in these situations. Many people find themselves in terribly difficult circumstances, where as much as they might feel what they're doing is wrong, they feel compelled nevertheless to go through it. I think we need to understand the role of men in abortion as well as women. It isn't just a female thing. But above all, as we said at the start, abortion is not the unforgivable sin. For anybody who comes to Jesus in repentance and faith, there is free forgiveness and a fresh start. He says, come to me, as we've seen in Matthew's Gospel. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened by sin, by regret, by guilt from the past, and I will give you rest. I will give you a relief from the burden of guilt before God. That is why Jesus died. So there is compassion, but it needs to be for both lives, doesn't it? It needs to be for the unborn too. And with that needs to come prayer. The prayers of countless Christians were involved in the eventual undoing of the slave trade in the 18th and 19th centuries. We should pray that something similar might be possible to end this current unseen elimination of generations of unborn children. And beyond compassion and prayer, there is also practical action. Now, I'm going to invite Corin to come and say a few words about this. You may not know, Corin was formerly a, a trustee of a pregnancy crisis centre that she helped to set up in the previous church she was involved with. Um, So she's going to speak a bit about that and some other practical ways we can respond to to this.
1: Hi, good morning everyone. Uh, I was involved um, in something called the Willow Centre in Buckhurst Hill. It was part of um, a nationwide uh, nationwide network of uh, different Christian-run crisis pregnancy centres and the aim of these centres was I think as Tom has already used that phrase both lives matter is to say that actually those of us of taking a a pro-life stance actually we are for the women as well and for them having the space to be properly cared for to be um, to be give them the chance to think through all the options um, in an environment that is caring, that is non-judgmental, that is warm, uh, and that also offers practical support. Many of the um, these uh, crisis pregnancy centers um, also offer practical help to the woman if she chooses to uh, keep the baby, with such things like um, baby equipment and other supplies. Um, Some um, run befriending service, uh, parenting courses, some help people um, financially, for example, to actually um, find out what benefits are available to them. So that these women, if they take the decision to keep the baby, don't feel that they're alone or unsupported, um, and also there for women who actually do have abortions, um, offering um, post-post-abortion counselling. Because although it may um, often be presented as um, an option without any downsides, actually, and, and for some that 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 is that is their experience, but. For a good number, there are ongoing effects. Um, and so counselling by trained counsellors is offered to help women who find themselves struggling with all manner of um, negative emotions after having a, a termination.
0: Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. So we're both going to take part in this Q&A after the service, so please do get ready with questions. There'll be a thing that comes up on the screen at the end of the service with a, a website and a code and you go to that website, you put in the code on the screen, um, and uh, you then can input your questions, and that's just a way of us handling things without having to shout across the building. Um, So so be ready for that at the end of the service. Um, And let me just also flag up this book. We've got These books are free to take away, just a little book by uh, Vaughan Roberts, well, sorry, it's not by Vaughan Roberts, it's by Lizzie Ling with Vaughan Roberts, and it's um, a book called uh, Abortion and um, it's uh, just giving, again, a, a Christian perspective on these things, be able to go into a bit more detail um, and, uh, than we've been able to do this morning. So we're going to put these on the tables at the sides. You just pick one up uh, as you go, and if we run out, you need to uh, Google abortion by Lizzie Ling from The Good Book Company, okay? So what uh, much recommended uh, book to read, book to give away. Let me... Though, just give us a a moment of quiet now to respond in our own hearts and then lead us in prayer. Father God, we again humble ourselves before you and praise you for your grace and your love for all those affected by especially the issues around abortion but also around th- those who, who, who grieve following miscarriage, those who struggle with infertility, those who grapple with difficult questions, whether in relation to to decision making in their own lives those who work as doctors GPs who need to talk to uh, women especially on uh, about these issues when they come asking for help father we are not able to do these things in our own strength we're not able to cope with them we're not able to have all the answers to these things we thank you for For Jesus, we thank you for your word. We pray you continue to guide us. And maybe where we need to, would we find new life and joy in Christ. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on him and his grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.